0: A listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn, and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine, and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times, and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. To many of us, being a leader might mean a corner office and a big pay packet. In reality, few future leaders listening today will ever end up flying first class. But what if you work for one of the big four accounting firms? My guest today has spent most of her career in the public service, including as the Chief Financial Officer for the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, and she was Head of the Office for Women. However, today, Amanda McIntyre is a partner in PwC's Government and Public Service Consulting Practice and the leader of the Federal Defence Account. In this episode, Amanda discusses leading in radically different cultures and offers advice for anyone chasing that corner office. Amanda McIntyre, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. Thanks, Helen. Can I start by asking, do you even have a corner office or have I just imagined it? Uh Ah.
1: I think you've uh, imagined it, not these days anyway. I did once have a corner office, but these days it's my study at home or an open plan style working environment at PwC, which, which
0: I actually prefer. So tell me what does an average day look like for you?
1: On most days it's probably divided into thirds. One third is really spent on team and people, mentoring Support for people and really guiding them through their day. Um, some planned catch-ups, sometimes dealings with issues and concerns. The second third's probably directed towards clients, uh, either talking to people in the market or delivering um, existing work. And then the other third is is really internal things, budgets, planning, standard management type decisions that uh, fill up the rest of the day.
0: I ask that because I think um, working at one of the big four with a big salary still remains kind of an elusive, exciting, sexy kind of job, but you didn't really make it sound that interesting just then. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um... I think when you break it down into the component parts, it can probably sound quite boring. I think it's the work that we get to work on with our clients every day that makes it really interesting, the kind of complex problems that we get to solve, bringing really great people together with our clients and working side by side to solve problems. Primarily, I look after defence, so primarily for the Department of Defence. That's what makes it exciting every day.
0: You had an incredible career in the public sector, um, mainly in Canberra. Can you tell us a bit about what the highlight of your time was working in the public service? It's probably really hard to pick just one
1: highlight. A couple, maybe, if I can go there, uh, opportunity to travel to Indigenous communities with my time working in Indigenous affairs. We talk a lot about our First Nations people but often without a lived experience of what remote communities are really like and I think visiting them gives you a really different perspective and it was a real privilege to be able to do that. And then I think um, participating in engagement on behalf of the Australian Government, uh, I got to help deliver the G20 Leaders Summit, leading all of the corporate and enabling services that helped make... Four days of international leaders coming to Australia, a real success, and leading delegations into international forums for the Office for Women gives you a real perspective on the esteem to which the Australian Public Service and the Australian Government is held in our region, but also across the world. So I was really lucky to be able to do a
0: lot of those things. Who was in government when you were sitting inside Cabinet? Tony Abbott was the Prime Minister. Fantastic. That would have been absolutely riveting because that, if I remember rightly, was when he didn't really have any women inside cabinet. Uh, there weren't very many, no.
1: <laughs> and I think at that point in time, he was still the Minister for Women himself. Fantastic.
0: Um, what sort of leader are you?
1: Uh, I hope the answer to that is an authentic one. I think with. Uh, me most of the time, what you see is what you get. One of my really good friends uh, describes my leadership as uh, fierce but kind. And while they're her words, I think there's probably some truth in that. I'm pretty fierce about uh, excellence in everything that you do and not doing a half-hearted job. And I really strive to have my, myself and my teams deliver that each and every day, but at the end of the day, a leader's role is to lead people and getting to know people as individuals and really valuing them for what they bring to a team each and every day I I think is is really important and something that I also strive to do. So I think while um, fierce but kind wouldn't necessarily be the first words that come to mind if I was describing it myself, Um, I think that's probably a pretty accurate
0: description. So you have a staff member who you think has done a half-baked job and it doesn't meet your expectations. What does managing that staff member look like for Amanda McIntyre?
1: In the first instance, I think it would be understanding if that was different to their normal delivery, maybe what was going on for them, if there was a reason that they had not delivered to a normal standard. And then I tend to use questioning to understand where people are at. So asking them all of the things or all of the steps I would have expected them to do to get to a delivery outcome, asking them if they've done those and why not, and helping them see themselves that maybe they could have done a little bit more or a little bit better to get to an outcome. On on most occasions, that leads to an aha moment for an individual, and they, they may go away uh, and go back and do things again. In the public service, when uh, people were producing briefings and deliverables, and they would come in and one of the tests I used to apply was, I'm busy, how comfortable are you that I just sign this document without reading it and send it on? And from people's body languages, you could often tell uh, whether they had done their best piece of work and whether they were willing to let you sign something uh, without reading through it yourself. And and when people looked a bit nervous, I would often just give it back to them and say, why don't you have another go and I'll bring it back when it's ready? So um I tend to give people an opportunity to to achieve that level of excellence
0: themselves. And would I be right in assuming that that would happen to you with a fair amount of regularity because of your commitment to excellence personally? So it'd be easy to go, I don't really know how to do this. If I throw it in front of Amanda, she'll tell me how to fix it.
1: Yeah, I try not to tell people how to fix it uh, because that Mm. just means they'll always bring the problem or something 50% done for me to finish the last 50%. But uh, I suppose to get people to understand what good looks like and to strive for it themselves because if everybody has their own understanding of that, then as a team, you know, what you can achieve is um, there's really no limit on that at that
0: point. One of the other reasons why I really wanted to talk to you today was because... I know you've thought a lot about leadership. You know, it's it's not something you've accidentally fallen into. You've given it some thought. You've worked on it. How do you think your leadership has evolved over time?
1: There's probably two ways in particular. The first has been learning to respond and, and learning to make sure that you understand the full context and the, the system in which something has happened or which an issue has arisen. Um, I think my natural personality is to react to things and also to try and resolve things really quickly. And I've learned over time, sometimes the most obvious or the first course of action is not the right one to take. And so uh, I have learned to ask questions first to make sure that you've got all of the perspectives uh, before you act on something. Uh, I've also learnt to be a little bit more vulnerable myself as a leader. I think um, helping people understand where you're coming from and and why you are striving for excellence or why you want them to behave in a particular way leads to better outcomes in, in the long run. And so being a little personally vulnerable around what the consequences of some things might be helps people understand you as a leader. But I think initially when I was in leadership roles, I didn't want anybody to see the person underneath. I just wanted them to see the professional facade. A- and I've learned that that doesn't necessarily help people follow you as a leader.
0: What about when you're working with people, um, which can be men or women, uh, who aren't great leaders? How much tolerance do you have for that? And how do you approach that challenge? I think you can only tolerate
1: it for a period of time. I think particularly with the mobility of the workforce these days, people vote with their feet if people are not good leaders. So if they're in my organisation or in my sphere of influence, helping those individuals be better leaders is is important for the success of the organisation. And where I can help people, I do. But I've also left roles because I've been working for someone who is not a good leader. And I have realized that sometimes you can't change other people and it's better for you to to move on to another role than stay in those situations. And I I think all of us as leaders should be looking for those signals in the system that might tell us that we need to do something different in our own leadership uh, to make sure that people do stay in our organisations and do continue to to work for us to, to allow us to achieve the outcomes we want to achieve.
0: One of the things that I find the hardest about a business that's growing is giving time to all of the members of the team. Mm. Um, so a very fashionable concept is collaboration followed by or equal to empathy. But in my less generous moments, I will say things like, I do not have time to be my you know, a textbook leader, collaborating and empathetic all the time. What sort of proportion of your time do you give over to that kind of textbook version of being a great leader? And knowing how your staff are feeling and checking in on how their holidays went or whether the cat's successfully back from the vet. Like it it can be a very difficult thing to come to terms with that you just can't give any more time to the people who often quite want it. I completely agree.
1: Um, I get heaps of energy from spending time with my team and I love getting to know people on a personal level and, and understanding those little things about them, what's important to them, one of my team was telling me today that one of our team members, his wife's just had a baby, and, and the name of the the baby, and um, those little things, and, and being able to make sure that I remember that, so that when he comes back from work, I can ask him how the baby is and how his wife is progressing. I think they're really important, so people feel seen by leaders in the organisation. But the bigger your team gets the amount of time that you've got to spend that with each and every person gets gets smaller and smaller and I find that one of the things that I miss from having a a small team and a smaller leadership role is that ability to get to know people on a really personal level. I think the answer to that is helping others be great leaders and, and spend that time with the team as well. We know that the connection that anybody has in an organisation that the um, leadership that is most important to them is their direct leader. And and so making sure that those people that report to me, that have team members reporting to them, also take the time to get to know people individually and you create that um, ripple effect, I suppose, through the team.
0: That's very heartening to know. And it's a really good point. I guess that leads me to the question of role modelling, good leadership. Um, How much importance do you place on having strong role models at the very top of an organisation?
1: I think the leadership shadow that anybody casts is is real. Uh, We talk about leadership shadow and it absolutely exists in every organisation and the role modelling that the CEO sets and the people that the CEO has around them. In our case, that's Executive board at PWC, the shadow that they cast over their parts of the organization absolutely sets the tone for how everybody else operates. I think you forget when you come into senior leadership positions uh, how much people love even a small amount of your time. When our CEO's in Canberra, I really encourage him to come around and meet the team. He does not remember all of their names and all of the people that he has met. But for the rest of the week and often uh, beyond that, the team will be talking to each other about when they met the CEO and what he said to them. And so those little moments that matter, that sometimes uh, we don't pay attention to, really get magnified in the organisation. And as a leader,
0: I think you have to be aware of that each and every day. Great point again. And you're making me um, recall the times when Rupert Murdoch used to come to Holt Street in Sydney and visit the building and the chaos that would <laughs> be spread across the organisation for weeks before he arrived and weeks, often weeks after. What, that, that does now bring me to um, the differences in, in leading in the private sector and the public sector. Very few guests that I've had on this podcast have had the level of experience that you've had both in the public and private sector. Tell me what are the key differences that you've found and and then I'll ask you about your advice to anyone thinking of doing it. I think leadership needs to
1: adapt to the context that you're leading in. So it's probably not as simple as all the public service leadership is the same and, and private sector leadership is the same. But I think there are some areas where there there are obvious differences. The first is in the public service, you've got a level of positional authority, uh, very defined leadership levels in the public service and it doesn't matter which department you're in, someone will understand what level of authority and decision-making you have given the level of role that you've got in the public service. And in a way, that's probably easier when you come into a a room and people know what decisions you can make and can't make and and what to expect from you. There's probably also a a higher level of transparency and accountability in the public service than the uh, private sector. So, you also are making decisions knowing that at any point in time, you could be under some form of external scrutiny for that decision, whether it's Senate estimates, a parliamentary inquiry, or as um, some public servants are experiencing at the moment, um, appearing at royal commissions. And so it does put a different spin on the way that you lead in those environments. I think in the private sector, because you don't have that positional authority, you need to be really good at collaborating and leading across teams and without that positional authority, you have to give people real reason to follow you as a leader and so that really does draw on your own personal leadership skills more so than the positional authority that the public service gives you.
0: What challenges do you experience when working in an office of high achievers? And I I guess I'm really referring to moving to PwC or any of the big four consulting firms where it's a pretty dynamic environment of heavy hitting partners. How did you adjust to that? And what advice do you have from anyone who's thinking about that career path?
1: So challenges with, with high achievers. I think i um, very lucky to walk into an organisation like PwC where everywhere you turn, there are experts in their fields and uh, it's not the most senior leaders often that are the subject matter. And bringing those people together as a team um, in most situations, you can achieve great things, but keeping those individuals motivated, helping them see the big picture and how they fit in, they will challenge you each and every day in the way that you are leading and what you are leading them on and the outcomes that you're achieving. So uh, while it's really easy to to get an outcome with experts, the challenge in that is keeping that team motivated for the long term and, and often the competition that comes uh, from people that want to move rapidly up the, the ladder and can see high achievers to the left of them and the right of them and see that the way to excel is to compete. And so ensuring that that competition doesn't get in the way of collaborative and, and team outcomes is something you
0: have to be focused on all the time. I want to move to the issue of, I guess, working with high achieving men and whether that gender balance is shifting and you're seeing a change in the culture in your organisation?
1: Yeah, having a, a finance background and and primarily in the early parts of my career working in corporate areas, in government, I spent a lot of time in male-dominated teams And I also progressed relatively fast in the early parts of my career. So it was inevitable that I was going to lead men and lead men from a pretty early point. And I never really approached it. I didn't approach it any differently. I think leading humans, it doesn't matter whether they're male or female, it's about knowing the individual and how you're going to motivate them. But what I did come across was those individuals weren't necessarily comfortable being led by a female and a female that was often younger than them. And particularly when I came into roles where someone had not ever had a female leader before, I found they really wanted to challenge my leadership style and how I was leading them. And I had to kind of learn that acknowledging that the way I led was something they had to I, I suppose get used to uh, and that I had to give them a bit of time to do that but that that time period didn't go on forever and I, I really found that for probably 90% of the men that I've led that has ended up being a really great experience for both parties uh, but I have had a couple of occasions where that hasn't gone well um, and, and in on those occasions I, I should have addressed the issue earlier than I did.
0: Would you feel incredibly comfortable now, given that you've led for a long time and you're potentially not got that age difference? Is it a struggle for you now or is it gone away?
1: Yeah, look, that was one of the confronting things. I think coming to PwC, it was the first time I'd been the oldest person in my team. And it <laughs> made me realise I'd got to that point in my, in my career. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you you learn all kinds of things on your leadership journey. And, and one that I've learnt is that you need to confront these things. Early on, on one occasion, I had a, a 2IC who had applied for my job, had not got it and undermined me for the entire time that he worked with me. And I should have addressed that much, much earlier. I took that learning into a leadership experience with a another individual who was openly criticising me and would roll his eyes in team meetings, and uh, I didn't let that go on for very long. I pulled him aside and said, "Look, clearly uh, you don't want to work for me. You're not happy with me leading this team. I'm very, very happy." to help you find another role and will be very supportive of that. Where do you want to go? How can I help you? And that conversation actually ended with him deciding that he really wanted to stay and over a period of time being one of my biggest backers and one of the people that I could turn to in that team and could rely on to do anything. And so I have learnt from those situations not to just let them fester and to address them because there's always an opportunity for um, either the individuals to resolve their differences or for people to, to move on. Um, so, yeah, I do approach that really differently. And and in a role like mine now, you don't have time to wait for six months or 12 months to just hope that time will allow that situation to change.
0: I can see a situation where that approach could go really badly And I can also see how it can lead to a very strong relationship. I suspect it's entirely about the tone that you set and listening to you tell that story. I assume that's the tone that you delivered that message in. That's the hard bit though, isn't It's not delivering it in a way you might use the same words, but, you know, you're threatened or you're defensive or you're angry or you're emotional. The same conversation can, can go pretty badly, I think that's true. I think any
1: conversation where people are coming in with heightened emotions can go badly. I'm in the process of delivering people's end-of-year performance outcomes at the moment and they are emotional conversations you're telling people Uh, how you've assessed their performance over 12 months. And those conversations can go as badly as one where you're coming into a new team and people are challenging your leadership. I think whenever you're walking into a conversation when there's heightened emotions, A, it's important that you keep your own emotions in check. I've had some people say some pretty horrible things (laughs) directly to me in those conversations, but you have to realise it's not about you it's about them and how they're feeling and try and come up with a solution that really respects the individual they might be really really good at their job they just don't want to work for you and in the public service and in an organization as big as pwc there's always options where people can go into another team they might be a square peg in a round hole in your team but there's probably the right spot for them somewhere else in the organisation and I'm always a big believer in trying to find the right role for the right individual, even if that's not in my team.
0: How do you strip the emotion from it? Many years ago I rang and he was a a very well-known negotiator. He was well-known at doing great deals And I rang him very agitated by a conversation I'd had with my boss. And he just said, you're just emotional. Why are you emotional? This is just a negotiation. It's the starting point. Strip the emotion out of it and start again. And I've always taken that on board. How have you got to the point where you can just take, particularly if someone's saying something quite nasty to you, where you can just suppress the emotion? Uh, I, th- I think you can only suppress it for a, a period
1: of time. It's not like you become completely emotionless. Alcohol, is alcohol. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, uh, there's certainly been um, plenty of times where I've had a little bit of help coming down at the end of the day. Um, but certainly it's about kind of suspending emotion for a period of time. And it's that how do you respond to the person rather than reacting to them? I, I don't I don't actually know how I how I do it, but I am really conscious of whatever my emotion is right then and there shouldn't be expressed to that person. I, I had one person say to me, uh, nobody in the team likes you. And I remember thinking, oh, that's not very pleasant. Uh, but my response was, I'd be really disappointed if uh, you had said to me, nobody in the team thinks you're competent. The fact that nobody likes me, while is disappointing, doesn't prevent me from from doing a good job. And so, finding a response that kind of takes the emotion out of it has kind of been the way that I've I've approached that. It doesn't mean to say when that conversation's over, I don't find somebody that I can ring up and, um, as you say, download on about how I'm feeling and how that made me made me feel. But I've been quite good at at finding a way not to react. In the conversation with the the
0: individual at the time. What about that night when you, you replay that conversation a dozen times? And is there a part of you? And I know the know the answer will be that says, is that true? And if that is true, you know, what do I do to fix it? You know, and then and then where do you go from that? Because being liked is kind of not the the job that you've got. It makes it more pleasant though. If
1: people like you. (laughs) Uh, So, look, I do think you you play these things. I think you test them with people that you trust. I think we're all really good at generalising. Nobody likes you probably means one or two people in the team don't really like you. It probably doesn't mean, I think at that time my team was about 100 people. It probably didn't mean a survey of 100 people had 100 responses of people that didn't like me, uh, and so I think also bringing an element of reality. But yes, I have I have had some feedback over time where I've made sure that I've tested it with other people, uh, because if it's if it's true, there is obviously learnings in that and things we can all learn and um, continuously improve our leadership. So part of it is feedback you want to take on board,
0: but you probably don't want to take it all on board. I don't think most people, male or female, would like to think that they're liked. In their leadership role. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, I think that's our preference. But if I had to choose between, do you like me and do you think I'm competent and good at my job? I wouldn't like to be well liked,
0: but thought to be incompetent. Yep. And that's the truth, um, because at some point you're not going to be liked if you're taking tough decisions. I I think if you think that all
1: the people are going to like you all of the time, then a senior leadership role is probably...
0: Not for you. Any advice for anyone who wants to make a partner in a firm like yours?
1: Uh, I think my advice would be to firstly work out what you really want from a job. i I've never had a particular role in mind as I've gone through my career. and and in fact, I, Left PwC five years into my career because I didn't want to be a partner. I looked at partners and thought, gee, they look like they work really, really hard, and they don't look like they're having a lot of fun. And uh, I don't think that's a job for me. Over my career, I've worked out there's there's three or four things that are really, really important to me in in any role. One, I do love leading teams. Um, I like leading big. Teams setting a strategy and and helping a team come together collaboratively to to deliver on that. I like working in fast-paced and often dynamic environments. I I worked in a lot of task forces in government because I liked the pace of the work, Uh, often the uncertainty in um, what you were going to be doing from one day to the next. I find that very exciting. And I need to be constantly learning and developing new skills. And so 15 years after leaving PwC, when uh, I was first approached to consider coming back as a partner, I actually looked at the role and thought, gosh, it ticks all of those boxes. Um, They are big teams. Uh, We have to work collaboratively not only across the organisation but with our clients to solve problems Often people call in uh, professional services to help them because they are in a crisis or there is a body of work that needs to be done in a very short period of time and they need the extra capacity and, and capability to do it. So it is a fast-paced environment. Often the goalposts change as we are delivering that work so it's it's quite dynamic and you have to adapt. And you're often working on things you haven't worked on before so you are constantly learning and developing new skills. And so when I actually looked at the job against all of my key criteria for the things that I love doing, it lined up perfectly. And so my advice would be to to sit down and make sure that you understand what those things are for you first and then check whether the job, whether it's a, a partner in a professional services firm or any other job that you're offered, really lines up with those things. Because if it doesn't, I think very quickly, you will find that you're not enjoying it and you
0: will be looking for something else to do. Amanda, it's very clear why you've led big teams. Thank you for sharing your insights today. And uh, let us know if you ever find that corner office.
1: (laughs) Thank you. But I I think if I find it, I'll turn it down because it's quite (laughs) lonely sitting in a corner office and I, I much prefer being out with the people that
0: I'm leading. Thanks, Helen. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe. Executive Producer, Jenny Goggin. Sound Production by Darcy Thompson.